so grateful for each of you and for our children's teachers, explorers, and pathfinders classes as they go now. What a joy to be able to share some quiet time with these boys and girls and to have this time together as a church family. One reason I wanted to highlight this at the table, that Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he did two things. He broke it and gave it. And it's notable in the scriptures that when the bread was broken for Passover, there was an understanding that God had given a way for every person's heart to celebrate the great deliverance but in their case, it was a deliverance in the past. When Jesus broke that bread, he was giving to them his very life, his, his very body. And Romans 8.31 says, because of that breaking and giving, we can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who would not spare his only Son but freely delivered him up for us all. And that text uses the same word that Jesus used of the giving of the bread. It was a determination to give, to bestow, to release to us the very life of the Son of God. And because of that, we know that when we meet at the table, we're, we're sharing together in a timeless and powerful reality that that takes us to um, to the very heart of the Christian faith. I've always wanted us to be able to observe this time together with a renewed sense that God meets us anew in the body of Christ every time we gather together. So I'd like to ask you to open in your Bible to the 11th chapter of Matthew, and I want to ask you to think with me as we walk in the power of the nourishment of Christ and realize what it means to be the body of Christ, that one of the benefits of the togetherness of the church is that we can bear one another's burdens, the scripture says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when you come to the 11th chapter of Matthew, I want to show you an example, share with you an example of a way that we can encounter anew the renewing power of the grace of God. And part of it is in being honest about our struggles, and part of it is tapping into what the psalmist wrote about, when he described the agility, the empowering grace of God that we can find when we are under pressure. In fact, today I would imagine that almost everyone here could think of some way that life has squeezed you, that you have found yourself facing pressure that sometimes feels overwhelming. And I'd like to ask you to leave your Bible open in Matthew 11 and read aloud with me from the screen 
what David wrote about his encounter with God in a time where it seemed that everything was being shaken. Read it aloud with me. We're reading here on the screen directly from Psalm 18, which is also recorded, by the way, the same words in 2 Samuel 22, right in the flow of the action where David is indeed literally running for his life at that point in time. But it is repeated in Psalm 18 as a part of that wonderful uh, collection, the, the, the hymnal of the early church, we may call it. So let's read together from Psalm 18. The God who girds me with strength makes my feet like hind's feet, able to stand firmly and advance on the dangerous heights of testing and trouble. He teaches my hands to war. I gave you the amplified translation here because the wording is important in David's experience. There there were times that he reflects in that psalm of how he learned to trust God is my rock. I will magnify the Lord. He is greatly exalted for the Lord is my rock, my strong tower, my fortress, my deliverer. He lists in that psalm the ways that the direct encounter with God as his source empowered him to run through an opposing band of soldiers, to leap over a wall, to have, as he says here, feet as agile as the feet of those, uh, those, those very uh, amazing and antelopes and, and elk and deer that climb into the high rocks and the crags of the rocks. So he's giving you what you need, and to take the wording again to heart, he's giving you what you need to be able to stand firmly and advance even in those times of, of pressure, even in those times when it may seem that you are experiencing overwhelming odds. Now, I asked you to turn to Matthew 11 because here we have an example in Scripture of one whose life is a vivid picture of why we need this fresh energy, this fresh grace, the agility to stand and to advance in times of pressure. And in your own Bible, I'm reading today from the New American Standard Uh, translation, so the wording might be just a bit different than what you have uh, in your lap today. Uh, But listen to what happens when John the Baptist is found in a time like his forebear David, experiencing unexpected and overwhelming stress. Matthew 11, when Jesus had finished giving instructions To his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now if you stop and think about this, clearly what we see is John the Baptist is facing unexpected perplexity 
in his life. Now, it's, it's all the more remarkable, as we'll see, because of his background. It is a vivid object lesson in the Bible of the fact that there is no one, no matter how experienced or seasoned, no matter how graced with gifts in their life, there is no one who is immune from some kind of discouragement. And when we look at this classic example, it's all the more dramatic for the fact that John the Baptist is in Scripture such a unique individual. I think of it kind of as a firebrand of faith. He, he seems to almost blaze on the, on the horizon of biblical history uh, like a meteor. He's, he is, uh, he's dynamic and unique and somewhat puzzling in his own way. And yet here in this text in Matthew 11, what we find is that this firebrand of faith has landed in prison because he has boldly spoken truth to power, very simply. And the sheer velocity and impact of his words were such that, that, Herod, that Herod feared the words of John the Baptist. He feared his influence. Thousands upon thousands were flocking to the Jordan River and were hearing the proclamation of John uh, out in the desert saying, Repent! Turn to God! Come back to the God of your fathers! Turn away from your idolatry! Turn away from selfish clinging to your own will! Be a force for good and refuse the path of the pagans and refuse the stilted religious rules and, and uh, rituals of those who would try to steal from God his glory. John was authentic. John was real. John understood what was at stake. And so what we find in Matthew chapter 11 is an example of someone who went from prophetic urgency to prison occupancy. And the question he asked in verse 3 is striking in light of all the things John himself had already proclaimed about Jesus. Now there's some ambiguity here as to whether he was asking this totally out of, out of um, doubt, or whether he simply wanted to have a, a greater perception of what was happening now. Because bear in mind, in those days, if you were locked up in a dungeon, you had no immediate information. You were completely locked out from any information flow. We get so used to, in our culture, having instant inputs of information that we forget how isolated, how alone, how destitute, how bereft of light a person would be locked away in that dungeon of Macaris where John was kept, a very secure fortress in the desert. So John has sent his ambassadors, and he says, are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Having declared the coming of the Lamb of God, and boldly said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, nevertheless, John was also a man of his generation and would have understood that the day is coming, 
as the prophets had foretold, that evil would be vanquished, that the unrighteous decrees of wicked rulers would be, would be quelled, and that God's righteousness and justice would be seen. And it's, it's a totally natural, it's a totally understandable uh, dilemma that these people faced, that as Jesus was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that they would have in their brain a kind of a blurred image. The kingdom of God means his righteousness comes, his justice comes, his vindication comes. In fact, so enduring is this connection between the kingdom of God and visible outward progress and deliverance that we know even in the book of Acts. Just for a moment, toggle over to Acts chapter 1 verse 6 and notice that the disciples there were asking Jesus a similar question. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. That's exactly the wording they used. And of course, we know what Jesus said in, in Acts 1, verse 6 and 7, don't we? He said, it's not for you to know, right? The times or the seasons that the Father has placed in his own order, but you, the born-again, redeemed children of God, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, individually and corporately, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. So John the Baptist naturally has a similar question. It's important to note this because it's not just a collapsing into doubt with John. It's not just that he's in a dungeon and he's, he's overwhelmed with the impossibility of his circumstances. It is that John was a man of the Word. That John the Baptist was deeply grounded in all that God's Word tells us, and yet he was a human struggling with the contradiction between what could be seen, and what was currently his very restricted environment. And I like the way that um, Charles Spurgeon described the dilemma there 140 years ago or so, when Charles Spurgeon wrote of this incident, that John was in prison, he did not make a good caged bird. Well, neither do you or I. He didn't make a good caged bird. This rugged prophetic javelin of the wilderness found confinement deeply discouraging. Now, of course, we can immediately identify with that fact, but we forget sometimes that Jesus honored these questions. Look at the text in Matthew 11 verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Notice that in that fourth verse of Matthew 11 that we could say truly and surely and without a doubt that our Lord and Savior Jesus honors real, authentic, honest questions from the heart. And I'm guessing today, I'm guessing there might be a few people here who have some honest questions for God. <laughs> yeah, because 
when you find yourself facing difficulty and discouragement, you know doesn't matter how much you've trusted in the past, our trust level toward God must be renewed and empowered every day. We need what David said there in that time of flight in the wilderness of En Gedi. I need my, my hands to be equipped for war. I need my feet to be able to be like Heinz feet to go on my high places. Now think of three things about John the Baptist that give us insight into the uniqueness of who he was. Obviously, even when he was a baby, this prophetic word came. Of course, the prophetic focus of John's life began not only in the womb when the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb to hear the voice of Mary, but even over 450 years prior when the prophet Malachi had prophesied, I will send my messenger before your face. So this is a guy with a rich prophetic pedigree. And when he's born, when the baby is just a few days old and Zacharias is presented with the baby and he's written on that tablet, his name is John, contra what the neighbors and the relatives expected. His name is John because it had been given to him by the angel. At that moment, Zacharias, his, his aged father, his tongue is loosed. His heart is overflowing. He's declaring praises to God, spontaneous praises unto the Lord. And out of that cascade of praise, the Holy Spirit rushes in like a mighty wind and brings prophetic word about the baby Elijah. And that is, he says, you child, you child shall go before the face of the Savior. And then in this text, if you look back in chapter 11 here, Jesus then also picks up on this very theme. If you go down into the same chapter you have open in Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus says, 13 and 14 of Matthew 11, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So John is the great uh, culminator of all of the great prophetic history of centuries. But then verse 14 of Matthew 11, Jesus says, and if you're willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. Now, of course, John then uh, was a prepared vessel. And, and it tells us that even a prepared vessel can find himself or herself in a place where the greatest need is the immediate connection to your heavenly Father and to the knowledge and assurance of what the Holy Spirit has in store. And that is a good thing. We want to affirm that today. Jesus honored these questions. Could you say it aloud with me today? Jesus honored honest questions. Would you say it? Jesus honored honest questions. I hope you'll take that home with you. Because another characteristic about John the Baptist is that he had a precise vision, and it was quite nuanced. He understood, like all of us should, not only who he was, but who he was not. <laughs> and he was crystal clear about who he was not. In the third chapter of the Gospel of John, the Bible tells us that John's testimony, when the priest and the Levites were sent to ask him who he was, he said, 
I'm not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. A characteristic of his, of his preparation was he was precise about his mission. And what was that precise purpose? He said, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And it tells us that we can have a mission and a call and a vision and a precise vision even if we don't know the contours of how it will be fulfilled. In fact, it is a characteristic mark of godly leaders that we walk in the light that we have and we're called to be faithful at times to a vision that we can't see around the bend. And clearly, that was the way for John. But in John's case, that precise vision of saying, prepare the way for the Lord, is a vision that echoes to this very day. And in that uh, preparation, John had also become very clear on what it meant to be a transitional leader. He was a very level-headed leader. The same groups of scribes and Pharisees that sought to test and pressure John were saying, you know, you're down here still baptizing people for the baptism of repentance, but, but Jesus and his disciples have been over here and they're baptizing. And there was a crossover moment there. There was a blending and overlapping of the era where still the word was going out to the people of Judea, repent and come to the Jordan and be washed in anticipation. But now the Messiah is here, and they're being baptized, and it would have been a golden opportunity for jealousy or competition to arise in the heart. But here was a level-headed leader. Though he didn't understand everything about the coming ministry of Jesus, he knew he, and he alone, was the Lamb of God. So John took an illustration from the weddings of Israel, and he explained what his role was. He said, I'm like the best man at the wedding. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. But the first man or the best man standing alongside him, his greatest joy, and isn't it true in any wonderful wedding that the greatest joy of the best man is that moment when that bride completes her walk on the aisle and bride and groom are joined eye to eye and the best man steps aside to hand that ring over to be placed on the bride's finger. That is his joy. And John said, that's my role. I'm the best man at the most awesome wedding imaginable. And the best way I can summarize my role and what's happening now in this overlapping of the Old Testament era and the entry of the glorious good news of the kingdom is he, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. How powerfully that truth could resonate in our lives today to understand that it endures today. Will I see my role? Will I see my unique vision? Will I see my calling as the role that God has given me with the greatest joy being that others come to know about Jesus, but that takes us back to Matthew 11, and go back to that third verse and notice in your Bible in Matthew 11 that this guy, prepared vessel with a precise vision, who's a level-headed leader and is exalting the Lord, has an honest question. Shout out honest question. And you do too, don't you? And Jesus honors what kind of questions? Honest questions. So, you could say in a way that John the Baptist takes a page out of the life of Job and way back in the, you know, the, the eons of time and 
literally over two millennia before John the Baptist was in that dungeon, Job had declared in the midst of his discovery of the awesome magnitude of trusting God, God knows the way that I take. And when he's tested me, I will come forth as gold. So I see John as having, having been shaken. Now, John was proclaiming an unshakable kingdom. But he himself was susceptible to shaking. That fits the pattern of Scripture. When David spoke of his fears often in Psalms, and you can see it repeatedly, he would say, he would describe it in the most graphic terms, and then he would say, but I put my trust in God. At one point where David and his men were out on a reconnaissance mission and had come back to the little village called Ziklag where their households had been kept, they thought securely the Philistines had come in and burned the, the, the village, taken the captives with them, taken wives and children, and taken the possessions. And at that point in time, the despair and discouragement was so high among even David's many loyal men that it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, they spoke of stoning David. But the very next phrase about David in one sentence capsulizes what hundreds of verses of Psalms show us. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now, Matthew chapter 11, verse 3 through 12 gives us an insight into the characteristic quality that becomes more clear because of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God when John the Baptist faces that level of pressure. What I think is notable here is that the 12th verse gives us in Matthew 11 an insight into the reason that John the Baptist, though shaken, became sharpened by the word of the Lord as his messengers came back from Jesus with Jesus' affirmation of John. John fulfilled his role. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A, a reed shaken in the wind? A man, a man dressed in fine clothes driving a Mercedes Benz with a, an entourage of, of uh, adoring fans? Is that what you were looking for? No, Jesus said, what you found was a man wearing rough clothing and eating locust and wild honey and boldly proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus fully affirmed John the Baptist and then showed the way that his life is a living object lesson of what can happen when you get shaken. Friends, you, like John, can get sharpened even when you're shaken. Look at verse 12 of Matthew 11. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven was enduring violence and the violent men take it by force. It's one of the most unusual verses because... Over time, as I've studied this verse, I've found it quite intriguing that this verse puts into a very terse phrase the inner motivation that it takes to realize that you can benefit in Christ in any frustration you face. Now, I've got to say that again because it's hard to sink in. In any frustration you face, 
The Holy Spirit, if you'll trust Him, can sharpen you so that you become a more effective instrument for God just like John the Baptist did. Now, a great illustration, I think, shows this before we go today. The great story of the Pilgrim's Progress, I think, illustrates it vividly. What Jesus is describing, John got sharpened even though he had been shaken because there was a tenacity that came from learning God's immediate presence. And the Pilgrim's Progress, probably we know of, aside from the Bible, they say that there have been more copies of the Pilgrim's Progress sold and distributed in the world than any other single book of English literature going back for now almost 500 years, about 470 years. And so in the days, in that great allegory, um, the Christian who's got that load on his back and is on his journey to the celestial city, the Christian encounters a, a, a slough of despond, a place where he gets discouraged like John did. He comes out of that, but he stumbles at different points. And then the figure representing the lies and accusations of Satan in the allegory is named Apollyon. Apollyon the monster threw an encountered Christian on his journey, and Apollyon threw a flaming dart at Christian, followed by an assault, throwing darts as thick as hail, wounding him in his head, his hand and his foot, and so Christian, like our friend John the Baptist, is now growing weaker. Though he's had remarkable preparation for this journey. And in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, when he's under siege and it feels like his very life is ebbing away, that Apollyon has gained the absolute victory, Christian begins to quote Micah 7 8, where the Bible says, Oh, rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. Though I fall, I shall rise. And Romans 8, 37, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And as he boldly began to utter those Bible verses, he gave a deadly thrust at the monster, and Apollyon spread forth his dragon wings and spread away. And the allegory tells us that exhausted but safe, Christian declared, I will give thanks to him that delivered me. Could you say with me, I will give thanks? I will give thanks. And then we see the secret. And it's exactly what Jesus put in John the Baptist's hands in that dungeon to sharpen him. And that is that in that battle between Apollyon and Christian, Apollyon is defeated by the word of God. And Christian is exhausted and yet safe. And he sits down in that place to eat and to drink and being refreshed by God's immediate presence. He continues his journey and yet now sharpened with a sword in his hand. And what does Christian say as he continues his journey? I know not, but some other enemy might be at hand. So if we ask, what does this mean in Matthew eleven twelve? 12? That the determined are seizing it by force. And as we look at all of John's prison questions, we see that a man with great 
spiritual preparation, has faced what many of us face, a perplexity that is overwhelming. (laughs) And the scripture gives us this assurance that in light of John's prison questions, we can say that the kingdom of God is rapidly advancing and the fearless are pressing in to seize it as a priceless treasure. That is, John is shaken in his immediate understanding of what's happening. Naturally, in a dungeon environment, he's shaken. But the word of the Lord that Jesus sends back to him not only sharpens him, but it becomes a model for us of advancing, advancing God's purpose in our time and whenever we face those honest questions, knowing what did we say? Jesus honors honest. Could you say it with me? Jesus honors honest questions. Oh Lord, we do thank you that you can give each of us in our times of perplexity not only comfort, which we obviously need, but you sharpen us. And may it be a day for this church, for our lives, that there's a sharpening understanding, a sharpening effect of even those points of frustration that we encounter. That we may know that alertness, vigilance is crucial in our time, just as it was in the allegory of Christian when he said, I, I keep this sharpened sword close at hand, for I know not that another enemy may arise rapidly. Lord, thank you today as well that we can move in that uh, wonderful same conviction that John exemplified when he said, Christ must increase, I must decrease. And Lord, as vividly and powerfully as you show us in Scripture your deep love for the individual, Lord, we know that the most secure place we could ever be is knowing that we found our security and our identity in Christ, our risen King. Lord, for every person here who has come with any point of need and clarity and clarification in their life, guidance and direction. May the shepherding care of our risen Savior be vividly real for them. Lord, we thank you also that we have the opportunity this week to move into a a confident and conscious and intentional gratitude. Lord, send us out, we pray, for Thanksgiving week with more than simply an awareness of our need to be grateful, but Lord, an active and advancing aspect of that gratitude in our hearts. Lord, show us how to bring a, a character, a, a, a the, the fragrance of a grateful heart and attitude even into those tough places where naturally griping and complaining might win the day. Lord, show us how to let that sharpening of the Word of God in each heart give each of us the tenacity that you showed us in John to press in for the kingdom to advance. In Jesus' name, amen.